This is Straight Ahead with the 606 Club of London and David Lewis. We'll be right back. 
Hello and welcome to this week's 606 Club Straight Ahead show with me, David Lewis. Our opener this week was from an artist you're going to be able to see with us live streaming at the club next month, Derek Nash, there with his Protect the Beat project, and we just listened to Just Say Goodbye. Our guest on the show this week is Clement Magere, and we're going to be talking about his uh, various projects that he's been releasing over the course of the last year, and rather aptly, Somebody we've got with us at the club this week is Amani, who features on this track with Clement. They recorded some tracks in lockdown last year, and this is a fantastic version that we have played on the show before of the great number, Georgie Porgy. It's not just situation, I just need contemplation over you. I'm not so systematic, it's just that I'm a I never ever should have told you you're my only love Not the only one that holds you Never ever should have told you you're my only world Georgie Porgy Pudding Pie Kiss the girls and made them cry Georgie Porgy Pudding Pie Kiss the girls and made them cry Georgie Porgy Pudding Pie Kiss the girls and made them cry
Clemenger's Wildcard. They're featuring Imani. And as I mentioned, Imani is streaming with us at the club this coming Sunday. I'll give you details of how you can watch her in action a little bit later on in the show. So last year, Christy McBride, along with his big band, released an album on the Mac Avenue label. It was called for Jimmy, Wes and Oliver. Obviously in tribute to the great works of Jimmy Smith, Wes Montgomery and Oliver Nelson. Some great numbers on there, some standards on there, as you'd imagine. They've released a couple of singles from the album, but not this one. This is their version of Milestones.
Christian McBride and his big band with their take on the standard milestones from last year's album. So I mentioned that we've got Amani with us at the club this coming weekend. On Saturday, we also have one of the finest exponents of the vibes. Anthony Kerr is with us. Originally born in Ireland as a young man, went over to New York and studied at the New York School of Jazz and Contemporary Music. And from there, his career went from strength to strength and he's never looked back since. We've got a live recording of him that was recorded over at Ronnie's in the early 2000s. And we're about to listen to Anthony Kerr and A Stitch in Time.
Anthony Kerr and his quartet with a stitch in time and they're with us at the club this coming Saturday, the 13th of March. It's been a really exciting time actually for new releases and on the show this week we've got music from Jimmy Layton, from Fergus McCready. We started playing tracks from that album last week. More from the wonderful new album from Georgia Mancho and Alan Broadbent, Quiet is the Star. And we've also got new music from Amanda Whiting and Ariel Besson. That's all to come on Straight Ahead this week. But next, another new release from Jackson Mather, the trumpeter, that's just released his debut album, Travels in a Confined Space. It's a very introspective album, all about the journey through the months of lockdown last year. And this track I really love from the album, it's Matador.
Matador is a track that you will find on trumpeter Jackson Mathard's brand new album, Travels in Confined Space is the name of the album. It'll be released on the 2nd of April. More new music now, this time from Jimmy Layton and his all-American Not Your Daddy's jazz band. They too have a brand new album out called The Persistence of Melody. On the saxes, it's Harvey Weinapel and Lincoln Adler. Trumpet is Eric Jacobson. And on the bass, you've got Jay Goating. It's a real meld of colours, a real fusion. If you kind of think of Charles Mingus uh, meets Frank Zappa, that's kind of the sound you're going to get. And from the album, we've got Blues for Lily. Thank you. 
Interview time now on Straight Ahead. And I mentioned a little bit earlier on, our guest this week is Clement Leger. We've already heard him along with Amani and their take on Georgie Porgy. Well, last year was a very busy year for Clement. He released Beasts from the East, the wildcard album that was uh, recorded over two years, three recording sessions, and had a stellar lineup, including on the saxes Tim Garland and Duncan Eagles, and on uh, trombone you had Rosie Turnton. So we're going to hear Clement in a minute uh, talking about what it was like moving over from France to London. But the first track we're about to hear from the album Beast from the East is Asparagus Moment. You're listening to me, David Lewis, and this is Straight Ahead. If you want to know what's happening at the Six, check out the website at 606club.co.uk.
on Straight Ahead this week, our guest is guitarist Clement Roger. Did I? How's my pronunciation, first of all? You sound more French than me. Well, <laughs> well, you are, as you said, a French Londoner now. So, been living over in the UK for about fifteen years, I believe, haven't you? As as from as from last July, yes, it's been fifteen years. I can't believe it, but yes, time flies. Fifteen years. And what was it? I, I kind of know we're jumping in midway through your career, but what was it that brought you to London in the first place? Was it the music scene or more opportunities here? I, mean, nah, I believe the actually, jazz scene to, is great in France, isn't it? To, yes, it is. It is. Um, and I was in Paris as well. I was not just in France, oh, right. I was in Paris, yeah, which is yeah. like like London in, in the UK is the capital where all the musicians fly to and go to to uh, migrate to, uh, to, to to for the big scene. Um, no, I was actually quite happy in France. I just did my um, uh, music college at the time, which is called the Sim, which was um, the equivalent of a, I don't know, like a, a digital... d- degree or yeah. yeah, 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 exactly a degree in France. And um, so I had all my network. I had quite a lot of teaching. I had some gigs. I had my friends. I grew up in Paris, so basically I had all my base there. Um, yeah, and uh, basically I met love and. <laughs> In music college, I, basically, I met um, Alexis Corker, which uh, which is um, uh, which was um, the mother of my children. So basically, one day we lived for two years in France, in Paris. She she was from um, she was she was English and she was from um, from Sheffield, Yorkshire. And uh, after two years in France, living together in France, so she's been three years in total and two years with me. Uh, she got really homesick, and it was a case of like, uh, you come with me or not, but I'm going back to London. And there you go. I mean, I'm like, hey, why not? So adventure. Let's, and actually, I loved it. Uh, I love. And how did love, you find I, getting assimilated yeah. into the scene? Was it kind of similar to the Paris scene? Oh, it was much, much easier in London. That's uh, it is for foreigner in Paris. Really? You, you, you yeah, surprised yeah. me. Oh, yeah, no, 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 absolutely not. Um, again, the the level, the variety, and the the the, the, the quality, if I may say, of the scene. In Paris, especially in the jazz scene, is really, really amazing. Plus, it's a much, um, it's there's much more density. As in, like there's a, it's a smaller town. Uh, you can walk everywhere, and there's probably the same amount of musicians than in London. Oh, I see, or, but in a smaller it's area, really, really dense, exactly. So, and and also, I would say, like, let's face it, British people are extremely especially london uh, i'm not sure i can say the same for all parts of england because i don't know them all but londoners are really welcoming whether it's from for other fellow british people who are not necessarily uh, foreigners but even fellow british people who are from other parts of the country Mm -hmm. or or foreigners like me and um yeah i did did find it was fairly easy to uh to meet people people were friendly at jam sessions i got some um some gigs and some uh, bus um gigging and teaching gigs fairly quickly as soon as my English um, improved. I didn't really speak English uh, when I arrived here. So I was going to say, how quickly were you able to get your foot in the door of clubs and begin getting gigs? But was it just one person you knew? Because it tends to be that, doesn't it? You know, one person that books you and then the doors begin to unlock. Is that kind of how it worked? Yes, it's pretty much like, I would say, I think anyway, like any uh, self-employed work, whether you're a plumber or you're, I don't know, electrician, Doing some guitar or doing some um, some taxi job. As soon as you are in a self-employed job, you have to build a network, and that's basically mm. what happened. I arrived here. My first um, worry was to get my English um, on track mm-hmm. um, because I had um, an English which was decent for um, as a, as a, a what we call a, a um, school English, as in like a, I had some good mark at school. But and with my partner, we never 
So it's gonna be we never we never we never spoke English, but basically she spoke a very good French, much better than my English even now. <laughs> right. And uh, I didn't have to make the effort, so I came here and yep. realized that people didn't speak <laughs> like we've learned in France in class. People didn't speak, especially in London, all with um, a BBC accent. <laughs> you know what I mean? People uh, there was lots of foreigners first of all, and even uh, even British people had lots of different accents. It was quite difficult. Absolutely. So it, it took it took me about like. Um, about six months, six months to basically get to jam session, get a few gigs, get a decent teaching job, and basically to be able to drop the. I was doing a um, a driving job that was really hard actually, <laughs> uh, drive, a driving job for uh, Paul the bakery. Oh yep. Um, funnily enough, actually, it was a French uh, brand. See, that's not why I went for that one. But so I was getting up at three a.m. every morning doing ten-hour shifts, delivering some bread uh, all across London. And that's and, the time as a musician you're used to going to bed, not getting up. <laughs> yes, but the, the funny thing is that obviously I wanted to play and meet people, so I was still going to jam session two or three times a week. Ouch! And regular, yeah. No, I mean, I, I mean, I was younger than I am now, so I was like twenty four, twenty five, and I've never been as tired in my life. I can say safely. I can bet. It's like, a, yeah, no, it was, it was tiring, but it was good. It was a good experience. And yes, again, to come back to your question, so yeah, I went on a tangent. Um, yes, it's been quite. Uh, I don't know if easy is the word, but definitely a welcome scene, mm-hmm. a welcoming scene. So excuse me uh, for for me and as I could see with fellow foreigners or newcomers to the scene, people are quite quite eager to meet new people and to um yeah to, to basically uh, have new guitarists coming on the scene. So that was that was nice. And including your time back in France, is being a musician all you've ever done? Is that the only job you've ever had? Nah. Apart from the driving and delivering bread that we just learned. Oh, but, no, no, no. Uh, I've, I've by the age of twenty-five, I think I had like fifteen jobs in my um, <laughs> in, in my in my CVs. Uh, my dad was a builder, uh, so I did a, a lot of um, on my pocket money, like doing some uh, uh, working in the building trader with in his company, like doing some electric job and some um, plastering and such, painting, decorating, and stuff like that. By the age of sixteen, I was a um, I, I started playing the guitar at the age of seven, so I was I always had that on the on the side, like playing the, the guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the age of 16, I was a um, guitar salesman, guitar demonstrator in a music shop in the center of Paris called Ham Piano. Uh, that sounds like an interesting music. job. Oh, I loved it. It was great. I, w- I could play lots of guitar. And quickly, they, I mean, I was quite good at selling. Mm-hmm. And quickly, they put me on the piano department. And I was actually doing really good, uh, really good work with that. So by the age of 18, they put me in charge of a shop. As a manager, and after that, I went into the so I did the equivalent of DA level. I was working on the side of uh, my studies, and I did a degree in uh, sales and marketing. Uh, I did few jobs in um, fewer jobs in uh, other jobs in uh, in sales and marketing, but I was actually doing a really good job and being very successful at a young age by the age of twenty one, um, doing sales in um, in the in the building merchants sector, completely. Like nothing to do with music. Nothing to now. And, and like it's a story that you hear a lot uh, amongst musicians. It's like by at the age of twenty one, uh, I woke up one day. I didn't hate my job or anything. I quite like it. And as I said, I was quite well off at, at my age, much better than most of my friends because I was doing well. And and I was like playing guitar. And I was like, do I want to be one of those thirty years old? Bear in mind, at 21, 30 is like the end of the world. It's like uh, <laughs> As in being old, right? I remember so, it, yes. Exactly. Just, just. <laughs> so I was like, do I want to turn 30? And to look back and say like, oh, if only, you know, if only I tried, if only 
uh, find out if I could actually be a musician. And then um, I took again some private lesson and worked on my uh, jazz. I discovered a lot for jazz. I was doing, uh, I've been trained as a classical uh, guitarist and for about a year on the side of my job and then did an audition for that music college. They took me in and literally also on, <laughs> on a meeting I had with the, the boss I, did, I was working for in the company. Um, he was literally paying me a lunch and saying, Clement, I want to give you a company. He, w- he was giving me a business on the table. And I said to him, sorry, I'm going to go and do some music. He was furious. He was like, no, you can't do that. People are really, I remember his phrase. He said to me, people are only really good at one thing. People are really good at one thing. And you are really good at one thing, Clément. He's doing business. Sales. He's good at making money. Sales. And I was like, nah, so yeah, I, I take my chances. And there you go. That was after the rest is... Yeah, well, obviously you had a fire and a passion burning inside of you. And as much as he was telling you, you were good at sales. He couldn't feel the desire you had to express yourself musically. So you said... You started playing as young as seven on the guitar. Is that because yes. it was around the house? Your family were musically, or there was, if not musicians, they were listening to a lot of music. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no I told, my, my dad was a builder, as I say, and basically the only thing he gave me musically is like uh, wherever I go, whether it's in the shower or I'm still doing some DIY jobs. I was doing plumbing again, like this um, this weekend. Uh, I'm whistling all the time. That's the only thing <laughs> I, I got. I was just going to say whistling. Since you mentioned builder, <laughs> that's, that's not the only thing I got from him, obviously. But the only thing I got from him in terms of music. Um, no, it's basically I like to tell a story on gigs. Uh, people who came to see the wildcard gigs and know that I love speaking on the mic, and more importantly, I love telling stories about tunes and stories in general. And quite often, people don't understand a word of what I'm saying because of the accent, but they're <laughs> kind enough to laugh at my jokes. No, what I, w- what I was going to say is that what, that story I tell quite often, when I was six, I was in a lounge, um, and I remember vividly my parents watching the news, uh, I don't know, the equivalent of uh, BBC News or what's not uh, mm-hmm. on, on, on the TV, and there was that guy doing some amazing dance move and being super funky, and he was on the news, right? Because he was releasing a new album that was 1986. And his guitarist was amazing. She had some, you know what they do on clips at the time. She had some um, some kind of hair, hair blow, blow the, on her hair. So she had, that was Jennifer Button. And um, that was, Jennifer Button was the guitarist for Michael Jackson. Right, right, right. And, oh, I can picture I'm, her now. Yes, I know exactly who you mean. Exactly. And, and basically that album was... Um, uh, but if I remember, 1986 or three, but whatever. Anyway, so I remember standing up in the lounge and pointing out the TV. It's a bit dramatic scene, but it's really what happened. And I said to my parents in French, obviously, that's what I want to be doing later. I want to be doing that. Obviously, they laughed at me, and uh, <laughs> yeah. And so they took me to. Uh, I insisted, insisted, insisted. And they took me to the um, local conservatory, and they said, like, oh, okay, right. So you have to do one year of. Solfege, which is like a not reading music, which is the best way of pe- putting people off, like you're doing an instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, I did stick to it. And uh, a year after, I had a classical guitar in my hand and I started playing guitar. And when did you find out that you actually quite like jazz and that, that was going to be an influence on you? Quite late, actually. Um, I was already in my teens. I fell in love thanks to my um, initial guitar teacher, which remained my guitar teacher for until the age of 18, uh, Jack, Jacques Mizrahi. Uh, classical guitar teacher, but he had a love for Brazilian music, West African music, Cuban music, and I studied all the um, Villa Lobos, Leo Brower, all the classical guitarists, but with those South American um, influences. And uh, being a teenager, I love all the rock music such as Metallica, Guns N' Roses, 
I come from a rough suburb of Paris as well, so really well into hip hop. So jazz was definitely, definitely not into my radar. Um, I discovered it like um, in my very late teen, and I wouldn't say I liked it actually at, at least at, at at first. I discovered people like um, um, yeah Charlie Parker, and I liked the atmosphere of jazz when I was in my early twenties. Mm-hmm. And then I digged into it, and then discovered like many artists that um, yeah like Royal Grove and the like, who actually made me really love jazz. And then I went to swing and su- search and search. So after it's like, like many people, you discover different artists. But at first, yeah, no, it was not like um, a love at sight, at first sight, as we say. It's like uh, many different genres. And then late teens, went into jazz. And yeah, in music college, uh, I was exposed to so much more music. And uh, then, uh, yes, I started to really like it. Uh, and how does it work in Paris when you're at college? I mean, over here, you tend to go and do a jazz degree, a classical degree. Was it, were you following a particular form of music in the degree that you were doing at college? Uh, it was called, I think the, the title, if I remember right, of the course I was doing was like um, jazz, um, jazz and improvised music. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely, um, Yes, in that spirit, as in like uh, we had some. Actually, I really loved it. I really loved it. There was, there was, we had some um, a core course, which was about like a history of music, not reading, basic arrangement, basic harmony. Uh, when I say basic, I mean harmony shortly. Um, instruments lessons, and one of my favorite one was the workshop one. And we had every term we had a different um, style of workshop, so we were exposed to. So we had a specialist. Workshop leader, which was specialist in straight ahead. The next term, we had a specialist in West African music, which was a, a great guy called Remo Dombe, Remo Dombe, which was a uh, actually very close friend of uh, Richard Bonner. Um, I've learned so much. That's that's when really when my love of West African music came through. Where a guy specialized in funk music, so we did all the James Run and GBs and so on. Yes, so it has exposed me to lots of music I was not necessarily exposed that um, as either as a teenager or as classical guitarist. And yeah, this has definitely shaped my um, my views and um, how to say that my um, yeah my overall kind of like love for music uh, for all those styles. Yeah, exactly. And and writing when you're writing, do you find you're pulling on all those different influences? You're pulling on the West African music and uh, the funk influences. I mean, clearly the funk influences are there for all to hear. But a bit big time. But I think it's the same for people have different way of writing. That's for sure. I mean, I was listening, for example to your excellent interview with uh, my friend Tara oh, yeah. Newton, um, the other day and uh, she was going on that as well it's like we and I agree with her we all have different way of um, writing mm. the process is different for everybody Everybody, but the concept is always the same we pull from our origin and our original like where we grew up what we've been listening to and as I said to, to you for me my first loves were obviously pop music like old kids and teenagers of pop music um, Brazilian music um, hip hop, rock, and late jazz came later on as a kind of a cement, in a way, basically for the the, the, the knowledge of harmony, the knowledge of um, how to put uh, one plus one together, how, how to put those chords together, those influences together. But basically, yes, it's what you grew up with, and yeah, that's. I think you can't replace what you've been listening to and what you've been dancing to. As a as a kid and as a teacher, Those early you, can, you can learn. You can learn later on as a as a as a student, as a learner. You, because people don't necessarily have to go to music college and be a great writer or, or good musicians. You, especially now with YouTube and uh, all those um, amazing concerts online, that's mm. fantastic. You can learn 
great stuff, but you can't replace that um, that stuff that you've been, yeah, growing growing up with. Definitely, uh, it's been a really interesting experience for me speaking to so many musicians over the, this last year. We've had been very lucky and had somebody on every week. And as a non-musician, the, the the things I learn and the takeaways that I carry from these interviews. And we had Alex Webb on last year, and he was talking about pop music, and he said. With jazz people, there's this real sort of deference and this real jazz snob that, you know, pop is... He said writing a good pop song is incredibly hard to make good pop music. It's not a straight 4-4 and you've got a a result. It's very hard work. And I'd never appreciated that factor that writing good pop is as hard as writing good jazz or, you know, even maybe good classical music. I guess I've been so focused on the jazz form, I kind of thought that beat all. If you think about it, first of all, Alex Webb is, I don't, I met him a couple of times, but I don't know him personally, but I have a lot of respect for him. And that doesn't surprise me he said that because he's a super open arranger, mm. pianist, and band leader. Um, we have many friends in common. So I've heard of him from, uh, from people like Sophia Loewe, for example, or Dennis Baptiste, or, mm. or Andy Davis, people who play, play with him. Uh, they only have good things to say about him. That doesn't surprise me he said that. I will just, Bounce on that, saying that I had a, an interview the other day with a, which was quite similar to that question uh, with a Colette Cooper. Uh, we had a good time as well, like uh, chatting. And I was saying to her, remember that in the 50s, when you hear the jazz police, I call that the jazz police, people who are saying like, oh, it's not swing or it's not. That's right. Um, anything, I, I know people and we all know people, basically anything past Charlie Mingus, and don't get me wrong, I love Charlie Mingus, but anything past Charlie Mingus is not considered jazz. It's not jazz, I think yeah. I think it's absolute rubbish. Sorry to be so uh, black and white here, but it's absolute rubbish. Um, no, because if you if you think about it, the jazz in the 50s, 50s, 60s, even 40s, I would say, was the popular music of the time. Of it, yeah. it was the music that was played on, you probably know, actually, I'm not saying that for you, it's like for people listening in general now. It's like the music played on Broadway at the time was jazz, and jazz was the popular music, like the one we have on Capital FM or... Um, or those big, like a mainstream radio that we listen to you uh, playing, uh, I don't know which artist I can think of now. My daughters are listening to it now, but um, <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I know the, what, exactly what you mean. Yeah, it's the mainstream yeah, so of that, the that time. Was the popular music of the time. And suddenly people kind of like, uh, some people had to stop. It's almost, it's almost like Back to the Future, that movie when people stay there and you go back to it every now and then. It's like, no, that's not how it is. The music evolved. That's why there was fusion. That's why there was Latin jazz. That's why there was some jazz funk. Whether you like it or not, by the way, or Afro jazz, or even swing. Swing even in itself has evolved. Uh, the, the people who play swing, I don't know, like Rob Meldau. Rob Meldau, which I love, has nothing to do with the what the like of a Bob Powell or the one playing like the jazz swing as it was played. In the fifties, because they have different influences, influences. Obviously, you evolve and you get better at it, and you take it with you. What's the point in playing stuff like they were like 60, 70, or even eighty years ago? Why?
finishing up the first part of our interview with Clement with another track from the album Beast from the East, which was Lempard des Angers. And more new music now, and another trumpeter, Ariel Besson, has just released her second album. The first album was called Radio One and was released back in 2015. This album is called Try, just recently released on the 5th of March. The lineup, Ariel obviously on the trumpet. You've got Benjamin Mousset on the piano. Isabel Sorling is the vocalist, and Fabrice Moreau is on the drums. The album's good all the way through, but one of the tracks that I really liked is the one we've got lined up and ready to play next on this week's Straight Ahead, The Sound of Your Voice, part two. Listen online, on DAB and on smart speakers. Straight Ahead, with London's leading music venue, The 606 Club. So our guest for this week now, Clement Magère. We're going to start off the second part of the interview with another track from the album Beast from the East. This is Tales from Hanoi. And uh, when we're talking to Clement in this part of the interview, we're going to hear about his views on uh, musicians' revenue from certain streaming services.
Well, exactly. No art form should stand still. And if it does, it's almost uh, it's degrading the art form, isn't it? Because it should progress. Every generation should come along with their own view on where this needs to go. And again, I've had some wonderful musicians on recently. Deshnell Gordon, for instance, you know, BBC Young Jazz Musician of the Year. And when you realise you've got, yeah. you got people like that at such a young age that are going to be carrying this forward now for the next 20, 30 years, but there'll be people hot on their heels soon enough that have got another view on it. And, and right now is such an amazing period in jazz. I'm just thinking of... Camilla George, Nubar Garcia, Deshnal, Binker. You know, there's so many great names that are taking jazz and just pushing it forward into the next generation, which is ex exciting times, isn't it? It is extremely exciting for many reasons. First of all, like the, I think what we call the British jazz scene, which I think might have been a bit on the back burner for a while. <laughs> like in the last five years, has definitely been like um, rejuvenated. And, and I think the reason for that is for a couple of reasons. All the names you, you mentioned, like Binker, which is also a good friend, uh, Binker, uh, Camilla, also, which I don't play well. Uh, one I never played with, I would love to play with him, is Shabak mm -hmm. Um I've seen him play, and that was a, also like quite a, a shock for me, but a good one. I played like, I think it was three years ago, I played uh, with Wildcard, um, we were lighting the um, uh, Calorie Wolf Jazz Festival. Mm -hmm. I think it was like six, the 6 to 7.30 p.m. slot or, some, or something like that. He was playing straight after. And I heard his music on, on, on radio, on a, yeah, on, online, whatever. And I've met him a couple of times at Jump Station playing just under, but I've never seen his gig. So I, I stayed around backstage and listened to his gig. The amount of energy. And I quite like to think that my gigs are quite energetic mm, itself, but mm. I mean, that's another level. I mean, that was really another level. I couldn't stop shaking my, my head and my, and, and, and my legs when I was listening to it. I mean, the, that was just pure joy. And I could see that the whole, there was a few thousands like listener. In a, was a, I don't know if you remember that. Um, I don't think, I think you stopped last year, but the Canary World Jazz Festival was an outdoor That's jazz right. festival. Yeah, yeah. So thousands of people. They were all dancing. It was kind of raining. It was one of those like summer, British summer day when it was on and off. Warm rain, yeah. On, uh, Exactly. Unluckily for him, he was quite ready. People were still there with their cargo. And I love the British public for that. It's like, <laughs> we're used come to it. Of Kamshine. <laughs> exactly. Cameron of Kamshine, you guys are great. That's brilliant. It was great. And my point was kind of like, first of all, there is a diversity in terms of um, background, race, age, um, style of music, because the like of Binker, Camila, um, and Shabaka, even though they don't play the same type of jazz, there is that dance and rhythm elements mm. that has been for too long forgotten, I think, in the way the British Justin was seeing jazz with having the same. Um, I'm sorry to say it, maybe it's a bit politically incorrect, but I'm going to play the card. I'm French and I don't really know the right word for it, but <laughs> white British, white British, um, middle, cla middle class. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, I'm part of it, by the way, being French, middle age, and um, having done a music college. But it's quite nice to mix it. And there was, I think for a long time, there's not been that mix, which has been really welcome. Mm. And now suddenly we are, we, like in, in Britain, we are like um, seen and talked about in, in you know, with, by people like uh, the, the New York Times and a great American newspaper were actually uh, recognizing the scene as being vibrant mm. and happening. And that's great. I'm really happy about that. Really happy.
And let's talk about Wildcard now. You mentioned a couple of times your band. Um, you actually mm-hmm. were down at the club at the Six last February, just before all gigs stopped. You did an album launch there for the Beast from the East, Beast of the East album. And then I know last year also you did some lockdown tracks. So let's talk about the, the band, the concept Wildcard. Where did that come from? How long has it been in existence for? Hello, the band has been, uh, thank you for asking that. <laughs> it's, um, I'm trying not to go in a tangent either. <laughs> uh, the band was created with my uh, partner, Alexis Corker, uh, that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. uh, uh, who was a pianist, before, excuse me, who was a pianist, and uh, I did watch the band with her like in 2008. And there was a classic format quintet piano, guitar, one horn, drum, bass, uh, Neville Neville, as in Neville Malcolm, was on double bass. Um, Cheryl Allen was on drum, and horns. Same thing was changing, but the one we recorded on our first album was Quentin Collins. Mm-hmm. And Dennis Rollins, my friend Dennis as well, which uh, we go quite a long way. I was speaking with him the other way. I was like, mate, I mean, we're talking like 14 years. That's when you start to say like, we go back a long way. So Dennis Rollins, yeah. And in 2011, I was, I was, gonna, I was trying music. I was not gigging as much. It was not going the way I wanted to. I had a couple of residencies in pubs and clubs, mainly pubs. And suddenly we played a gig with Sophie Alloway, which is one third of the, of the, the, the trio, mm-hmm. and Andrew Noble on Hammond Organ. And that was my second gig on a Hammond Organ trio format, which I really like for, the, for many reasons, including the, the freedom it gives us. We can basically break the form. Dy- uh, Dynamic-wise, we can really go from super, super quiet to super... Um, high and 40 in no time because we just have to look at each other. It's like uh, this, yeah, basically the, the, there's really lots of liberty about that. And we played one gig together. In, I remember it was in that pub, which was called the Dignity in um, Finchley, residency that we had for three years. And it was one of those when we clicked. We had so much fun. And there you go, Wildcard was born. Uh, Wildcard as we know it today. Um, so for me, Wildcard was born on the first uh, E, that was 7th or 8th, 7th, I think, 7th of July, 2011 in that pub. Right. Since then, we've played like hundreds, I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of gigs, whether it was pub, club or festival, uh, domestic festival or international. And um, five albums, um, countless of collaboration, but always with the same core, mm-hmm. which is the organ trio, Andrew, Sophie and myself, that's the core of the band. Yes, that's the. And then, of course, last year you decided, as many musicians did through having to, there wasn't a choice, that you decided to still have some musical presence to do some lockdown tracks. It was like an EP, a four or five track EP. And I think one of the first tracks I heard from that was a brilliant version of a fantastic song, Georgie Porgy, which is one of my favourite songs from Luther to Eric Benet. It's just a, a wonderful song, isn't it? And you put your own spin on that, of course, with another one of the vocalists that comes down to the club an awful lot, Imani. So where was the tie-up with you and Imani? How did that start? Hello, Imani. Hello, first of all, to go back on the, the lockdown session, so you were mentioning the 606, which is, sorry, I'm just going to go back on the 606. Mm, it's a, please it's, do. It's a club that I, I very, very much have. Um, it's a very dear club for me. I love the team. I love... Um, Steve Ruby and Laura mm-hmm. Thorne, who are doing an amazing job. They, they are supporting the musician in a way that no other club does. Um, they are struggling. We are all struggling in that, mm-hmm. um, in that era, in that time. And we've played, so we've, we've played many times there, but we played also like um, probably one of the first, I think was the second um, live stream there with Wildcard. That was early July with um, 
with um, Grand Flowers, which is like the fourth member of the band. Um, I like to say like almost like the fifth member of the Beatles. Um, <laughs> and with what's his name? Uh, the producer, I can't remember his name now. Um, anyway, so Grand Flowers has been like a, from the world go, like always there. So he's always there on all the big gigs, the old big, the big recordings. Uh, so it was there with him, and there was um, Luna Cohen on vocal as well. Yeah. So that was that was early July, and we also were booked for the last. You were right in the announcement you made at the beginning when you asked me the question. Almost completely right. The last gig we played there was not the Beast of the Beast from the East um, launch. It was the 16th of October. It was the last Friday before the um, the new non mixing non mixing household came in, which which became. We started to be we started to be, become really hard at that time for all music venue to actually um, manage to pull a crowd. Oh, so that all, was yeah. that was with Paul Booth and uh, Trevor Myers. Mm-hmm. And it, to come back to um, to those uh, lockdown uh, track um, again, I went on a tangent. Sorry, um, it's not yet an EP. Uh, we might release an EP with all those tracks because it starts to add up. It was never meant to be like that many tracks because, in all fairness, we all actually I did think at the time that. It was not going to last that long, um, but it did, and it's been nearly a year now. So in July, basically, I decided to uh, put some budget aside. Uh, still had that budget, um, not that budget, that uh, selling, selling and business um, heads uh, with wild cards, pro- promotion, promoting it as a brand almost. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I decided to go. The first track was a tune called "Cabin 19 Fever." Mm-hmm. That was in. I can't remember if it was early July or late June. That's when we did it anyway with um, Grand Flowers, Leo Richardson on tenor sax, which is also like a regular of um, the wildcard um, lineup. And um, that was the first one. So that's the first time I really mixed the tracks. First time I did um, what we call a split screen video, which because I do all the video myself as well. Um, that was okay for the first one. And then for the second one, which was in August or July, the second one was with Imani, still with uh, Graham, still with Leo Richardson on sax. And this time we added another regular, which is um, Rosie Turton on trombone. And all recorded remotely, right? All of those remote tracks, uh, as the label says, it's all recorded remotely. So basically, concept is quite simple. I write the track, write the arrangements, uh, do some short uh, solo section that we, we, that we would do live or in the studio because we can't interact so much with each other. Oh, so it's um, almost like a reference track you're sending kind of thing. Is that the it's idea? It's not almost, it's a complete reference track. Right, so basically right. I sent Sophie and Andy a, an arrangement um, with the music written down. I sent them a reference track on guitar and a bass, uh, quite often a shaker, <laughs> which Sophie always takes the mickey of me because it's not necessarily great timing, but um, I do the best but to give some sense of time. And then they record the drum and organ parts. So we have then an organ to your parts. And then that refresh track is sent to the horns with again the, the heads and all the horns arrangement and a, loop, a section for improvising mm-hmm. uh, for them. So that's how it works. And again, we all have played together quite extensively live. So we kind of know where it's going to go, kind of know yeah. how When we play with Paul Booth or Graham Flowers or Trevor Myers or Rosie Turton, we have an idea of where they're going to go because we've played with them so many gigs and so many festivals. So you, there's a bit of guessing work here, mm. and uh, and at the end it happens or not. And so far it has happened uh, pretty well. And Imani, we started working together with um, Tim Garland on this oh, yeah. from this for the first time. 
for an album that was commissioned, not an album, but for three tracks that were commissioned by um, Sennheiser. Yeah. The, the headphone. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for some uh, for some reason, they had a deal with um, with Brian um, from SolenJazz.com uh, Radio, mm-hmm. um, and Brian contacted me while I was doing the promo for the previous album, Life Story, and he said to me, "Would you like to uh, record some uh, some music?" And the deal is it's promotional video for Sennheiser, so if you have two or three tracks to record, we can do it um, in a studio. So basically they pay it for they it. They pay the studio with, for these engineers, yep. With their engineers, with uh, with um, literally 30K worth of uh, material, with, uh, with video and um, and audio, like the dream of any musician. And I called Sophie and Andy. I'm like, okay, let's do it. I called Graham. I called the Barnaby Dickinson on the tenor saxophone, which, uh, tenor, sorry, on trombone, sorry, excuse me, on trombone, Barnaby Dickinson, which is somebody I wanted to work with for a long time. And more importantly, there's one of my favorite saxophonists in the UK, one of probably the, the only one or one of the few ones who has a Grammy Award sitting on his mantelpiece fireplace is Tim Garland. And I contacted him and it turns out that actually Graham and Barnaby, especially Barnaby, knew Tim for the last 20 years. They've been playing together in so many... It's always a uh, small world. It's a small it's world. It's a small world. They've been playing in the, one of my favorite like British band, which is like uh, London Horns. So I said, I've already contacted him for live stories. He couldn't make it. I think he was on two with, um, with Chicory, I think, at the time. And for that one, I contacted him. He was free and he, yeah, he joined us for three tracks, including that one with Imani. So that was a dream come true. So there you go. Imani, Tim Garland on the same track. And that's Miss Pong Years for you. It's like a who's who, really. And the, the tracks on the album, they're all available to buy and stream, are they? I mean, Absolutely. rather, rather buy than stream, let's face it. <laughs> I mean, uh, I won't give you the figures of uh, how much I'm having for, or any musician is having for streaming. For I've stream. seen them. And, on, uh, yeah, on, on, Spotify, uh, on Spotify, I mean, it's like we have over 1.5 million stream and hits on Spotify, which is great. I'm grateful for the visibility. But I'm guessing out of 1.5 million streams, you can't afford to buy a box of matches. A bit more than that. <laughs> we can buy a few boxes of matches. I know. It's, it's it's really li- it, I know. It's a few hundred quid, if that. I mean, it's ridiculous. It, it's so poor. Funny enough, I was uh, when I had Simon Lasky on and we were talking about streaming and he, he brought up the point, how come that Netflix have got it so right for actors that streaming actually brings them revenue, but when it comes to Spotify and other platforms, streaming for musicians just doesn't add up. It, it's great for... I can for, tell you. Tell us. I, I can't tell, can tell you why, and I yeah. will tell you why, but because I've asked myself exactly the same question, and I was lucky enough, and actually I discussed it at length with Simon, who came here many times. We really, he's nice in America doing great That's job right. in yeah. Tampa. Yeah. But he lives, I'm not, I'm not making that up. He used to live, I think he still has the same flat. He used to live 500 meters from me, right. in northwest London. Yeah. And um, so anyway, one time he was here, and we were having some food, and I was explaining to him that one, the father of one of my people, guitar people, is quite higher up in the hierarchy in, um, um, uh, what's the name of that? Uh, Samsung. He works for Samsung. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Samsung has some deal with Spotify. Mm-hmm. And we, I was having a, um, a meal as well. We became a friend of mine, uh, um, a meal with the father of that pupil. And he said, I, I said to him the same thing. It's like, how come musicians are so badly treated Maybe treat is not the word, but uh, remunerated. I mean, yeah, yeah, numer- exactly. Remunerated for 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 their for the tracks. Um, I don't understand. And he explained to me because they had a meeting with actually the head of Spotify. 
he was at the table and he explained to me that the head of Spotify and the Spotify had sold, but he himself and Spotify was not making that much profit. And I, he did show me some figures. It's true because they are completely being squeezed by, the, again, the same top five big labels such as Verve and those big um, labels who are saying, if you want, as in you, Spotify, if you want to have the like of, I don't know. The um, biggest names, the biggest, yeah. The biggest names such as um, Lady Gaga or um, Ed Sheeran mm -hmm. or, or the search. I'm saying those names, not saying that there's their fault. No. I have no idea. I'm just throwing those names out there. Uh, if you want to have Ed Sheeran on your Spotify playlist, which people would expect to have, mm -hmm. you need to pay such percentage of the stream they will be having. So basically, they have to pay such a large percentage. That's the reason I've been given, which makes sense. It does, to yeah. Those, to those few dozens artists who are actually uh, represented by those big, big, big labels, labels. yeah. That all the little ones and the middle ones, like myself or the Simon Lasky and the like, regardless of the millions or hundreds of thousands or even the few dozens of plays they have, they get peanuts for it. Mm. That's that's what I've been explained. So sorry, I went at length. But no, 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 it's fascinating. It extremely interesting. Mm. No, it is. It's a, you know, that in itself is like a whole interview standing there waiting to happen, just talking about the streaming revenues because, Big time. Uh, you right. know, again, I saw Gabriel Latchin got onto a, a Spotify playlist and had an amazing amount of exposure, but money, you know, it's just not there, which... No, it's not. Right now, musicians need money. So, so where can people buy your albums? Let's try and make you a couple of quid. Thank you. Thank you for the plug. <laughs> Where's the best obviously, place for them to go? <laughs> thank you. Um, no, uh, all the albums can obviously be bought, be, uh, be bought from, um, from our website, which mm -hmm. is dub, 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 wildcardmusic.com. I'll say it again one more time. Dub, 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 wildcardmusic.com. Mm -hmm. um, you can buy all the albums either um, digitally or mm -hmm. physically. Mm -hmm. Actually, you can buy them all physically. There's a few sold out locally. Um, otherwise, you, they're available on all the major platforms such as um, Apple, um, yeah, Apple, yeah, on, um, Amazon, and Amazon, and, and all the like. Actually, even Spotify, you can buy it on Spotify. We get a decent uh, cut and on you're... Spotify buying, but the actual streaming, we get nothing out of it. You're on Bandcamp as well, aren't you? No, I'm not. Oh, <laughs> I did. I did jump. I did jump on the wagon because I don't know because I was busy doing other stuff. Because so normally artists say that being on Bandcamp is actually quite a good place to be at the moment. So I wondered if that was a. I've, I've been told many times, and I'm not even going to try to argue. It's not because I'm sure it is. I, I, I need to look into it. I have the. I have my website. Um, we can we sell a decent amount of um, album each time when they release from the website and um, online. I have a digital distributor. Um, but at some point I should get on it because I believe it is the most straightforward way to get um, the money straight Revenue, to yeah. the artist when they buy it. Otherwise, when you exactly 80%, when you get on our website and buy the albums, 100% goes straight into um, the to us to the band, is, yeah, which is what's band, needed. Exactly. As we said before, recording albums and making albums is not a cheap process, so that's where the artist needs oh, no. supporting directly. Absolutely. So, well, come on. That was a fascinating way of spending the evening talking to you. Thank you. It's been fantastic catching up with you. We'll be going to play a, a number of tracks through the course of the show from that, and I'll be supporting you as much as I can. So whatever projects you're up to, please, please let us have them on the show. We'd love to play them. And hopefully once the club down at Chelsea, the Six, can open its doors again, I'll come down and share a glass of that lovely-looking red that you're sipping, and we can uh, have a quick hang between sets. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me, David. And uh, long live the show as well. It's a great show. And looking forward to speak to you again. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you. Come on. Real pleasure. Thank you, sir. Cheers. 
Thank you so much to Clement. I really enjoyed that interview with him. I hope you did too. And the final track we just heard there from the album Beast from the East at the end of the interview was Screenwalkers. More new music now to come on Straight Ahead. And this time in the guise of Welsh harpist Amanda Whiting. She has got an album coming out on Jasmine Records on the 9th of April. The album's going to be called After Dark, a beautiful listen. And uh, the lineup is John Reynolds on the drums and Aidan Thorne on the bass. And the track that we're going to be listening to now is The Feist. Straight Ahead with David Lewis.
Amanda Whiting very much taking her cues from such harp luminaries as Alice Coltrane and Dorothy Ashby, and we just listened to The Feist, which is on the album After Dark, released on Jasmine Records on the 9th of April. And an album that was released last week was Duality. We've been playing tracks from the album on the show over the past few weeks, obviously featuring the work of Tom Remen and Jim Mullen, both guitarists, and it really wouldn't be complete on an album such as that unless they had a tribute towards Wes Montgomery. And this is a tune they both know so, so well. It's like putty in their hands, it really is. We're about to listen to Whisper Knot.
Whisperknot, a track that you'll find on the album Duality from guitarists Tom Remen and Jim Mullen. Last week, I started to play tracks from the brand new album from the Scottish pianist Fergus McCready. Fergus and I are going to be sitting down very soon. You'll hear him on the show in the next few weeks. But the album's called Ken, and the first track on the album is this. It's called North. The lineup is his go to lineup of David Bowden on the double bass and Stephen Henderson on the drums. Thank you. 
can't wait to sit down with Fergus in the next few weeks and talk about the recording of that album, Ken. We just listened to North, and the album is available over on Bandcamp. Last week, we started playing tracks from Quiet Is The Star from Georgie Mancho and Alan Broadbent. They have worked with pretty much everybody. Uh, Alan, for instance, with artists as far ranging as Natalie Cole, Woody Herman and Toots Stillman. Georgia herself has worked with the likes of Leanne Carroll, Ian Shaw and Gwilym Sincock. You know how much I rate the album. It's one of my go-to albums of the moment, being played many, many evenings at home. And uh, this is Tell the River. Tell the river to run free and find me Even if the tide is wrong It still will rush to see Tell my children to grow strong and healthy And if my body's gone, they will remember me. When the shadows pull too long, the sun will seem to lose its over time the face the smile they see will still be mine tell the bird that's flying free to find me Spirits must believe when each star up in the sky so far away, whether they are falling or are here to stay, when each
time they overcome, our spirits must believe. When each star up in the sky so far away, whether they are falling or are here to stay. me 
The track that preceded this was from Georgia Mancio and Alan Broadbent. Quiet is the star is their new album. Tell River is the track we just listened to. And that gorgeous track that just finished a moment ago from Toku, an album called Toku in Paris. You can find it over on Bandcamp. It featured the vocals of Sarah Lanceman. I will wait for you. Many thanks indeed to Clement Roger for being our guest this week. And uh, we will be back at the same time next week for another two hours of great music and, of course, conversation as well with another great guest. Time for just one more track on Straight Ahead this week, and it's going back to the album from Rob Luft and Alina Dooney. Lost Ships is the album. The lineup on the album is completed with Fred Thomas on the piano and Matthew Michelle is on the flugelhorn. If you've not yet checked it out again, it's available over on Bandcamp. So the track we're playing out on this week is Air Encore. I'll see you next week. le temps et jouer de la vie comme on joue de l'amour et je vivais la nuit sans compter sur mes jours qui fuyaient dans le temps j'ai fait tant de projets qui sont restés en l'air j'ai fondé tant d'espoir qui se sont envolés que je reste perdu ne sachant où aller les yeux cherchant le ciel Mais le cœur mis en terre Hier encore J'avais vingt ans Je gaspillais le temps En croyant l'arrêter Pour le retenir Même le devancer Je n'ai fait que courir Et me suis essoufflé Ignorant le passé Conjuguant au futur Précédé de moi toute conversation Et donner mon avis que je voulais le bon Pour critiquer le monde avec des involtures J'avais vingt ans, mais j'ai perdu mon temps à faire des folies qui ne me laissent au fond rien de vraiment précis que quelques rides au front, la peur de l'ennui. Car mes amours sont mortes avant que d'exister, mes amis sont partis et ne reviendront pas. Par ma faute, j'ai fait. Le vide autour de moi J'ai gâché ma vie Et mes jeunes années Du meilleur et du pire En jetant le meilleur J'ai figé mes sourires Et j'ai glacé mes pleurs Où sont-ils à présent À présent Mais 
Vingt ans 